reading for today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 15. We'll be reading the entire chapter 15, but we'll be reading it in parts. Now, in this chapter, Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories about lost ones. And you may have heard these stories many, many times before. They often go by titles like uh, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. But there's more to them. You know, those, those titles are not in the original text. They were added later. And Jesus didn't say, now I'm going to tell you a story about a lost coin. Now, what Jesus tells is a parable. It's a story that is bigger than, than one little title. It's a whole world that Jesus is inviting us to step into. A parable is a, an imaginary reality, this different thing where, where rules work differently. And there's always a lot going on, more than meets the eye. In fact, there's too much in one parable to cover in one sermon or, or one Bible study. It's, it could take a whole lifetime to understand some of these parables. And we will come back to these again sometime. I've added them to my list of sermons I want to preach in the future. Uh, this week in our Bible study, when we studied Luke chapter 15, we, we couldn't even begin to scratch the surface of all that's going on here. And people have written whole books on even just one of these three parables. And as we read these parables today, I want you to notice the details that pop up. We'll hold these three parables up alongside each other, and that will help us understand what Jesus is trying to tell us with the whole of them. Because we come to God's word expecting God's revelation. So hear the word of the Lord now from Luke chapter 15. We'll read verses 1 through 17. Now the tax collectors and sinners we're all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after that lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, Jesus tells this story in response to this problem, this question that he's got from the Pharisees. See, he's been preaching all about repentance for the last couple chapters, and they were all on board with that. I mean, last week we heard Jesus tell this story about a fig tree that's about to be cut down because it won't produce fruit. And, and Jesus says, it should, should it be cut down like all those people who suffered tragedy? I tell you, no, says Jesus, no. The fig tree is the one that gets extra attention and care from the gardener so that it will produce fruit. Now, Jesus clearly puts his teaching into practice because he spends extra time with those people, the so-called sinners. It's the ones who are habitual sinners, whose lifestyle puts them in the place of being outside of the circle. And Jesus calls the crowds to follow him despite whatever the cost might be. And the ones who come, the ones who come closest to Jesus are the ones who are so-called sinners, the the tax collectors, and they gather close around him. Now the Pharisees are there too. We see them a a little bit off to the side. 
But they're the ones who are considered good people. They are the righteous ones. That doesn't mean they're perfect or sinless, but it just means that they're trying their best to follow God's law, to live in God's way. And they stay away from those people. They live clean and holy lives, but here they are grumbling and complaining to Jesus or about Jesus. Why does this man welcome sinners and eat with them? Now, some of the Pharisees might consider themselves followers of Jesus. After all, they're there nearby listening to him. Uh, Jesus himself may have been a Pharisee at birth, uh, and, and they have a lot in common. Jesus is calling people to repent, and the Pharisees sure think that everyone else needs to repent. They're all about revival in the nation of Israel. But they don't understand why he spends so much time with those people. So that's the context of these parables. Jesus tells these three stories in response to the Pharisees grumbling. Now in the first story, which you've probably heard many times before, there's this flock of 100 sheep. And there's one sheep that goes missing. And the shepherd goes off to find it. And when he finds it, he throws a party to celebrate the lost sheep with all his friends and neighbors. And that's the short and easy version of the story. And the quick application is the one that Jesus gives, uh, that Jesus gives in verse 7. Um, the, the heaven rejoices over one repentant sinner uh, more than the, over the 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. And so we say, okay, basically, we're the one sheep, the lost sinner, and God is the shepherd who comes to rescue us. But wait, there's more going on in the parable. Notice some of the details that complicate that quick reading of the story. First, how did the sheep get lost? How did the sheep get lost? How did it end up wandering far away from the flock? And why, when the shepherd goes to seek after that one, why does he abandon the 99 sheep in the wilderness to find that one lost sheep? And what do you think the 99 sheep thought about that, seeing their shepherd go off and leave them alone, going to find this one lost sheep? And then when the shepherd comes back, how did that joyful celebration go down? I mean, what did they eat at that party? Well, for, for a lot of those questions, we, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but there are some clues. And so we can look at the story from different angles and try to figure out what is Jesus revealing to us. Now, one commentator says that something that caught my attention. He says, parables have an excess of meaning. Parables have an excess of meaning. That means there is too much going on in a parable. Or at least there's more than really needs to be there. And why is that? Well, because for Jesus, Jesus means for us to look at these parables from different angles. He means for us to step into them and to imagine ourselves in different places in the parable. And even Jesus does this when he tells parables. This very same parable is in uh, Matthew chapter 18, and there's a whole different moral and interpretation of it. Uh, here it's, you know, the joy over repentance, but in Matthew it's all about take care of those little ones, those lost ones, the, the, the young children of God. Now parables are these many little worlds that we get to step into, to imagine ourselves in, and to allow God to change us by them. So first let's take the lost sheep in the story. How did it wander off? And what was it like for that lost sheep? Well, I heard a story in the news just in the last week or two about a lost sheep. You may have heard it too. There, there was a sheep uh, that was lost recently in Australia. 
This sheep uh, wandered off into the bush in in the national forest, and a man was hiking, and he saw the sheep in the wilderness, and he thought, that sheep is not okay So he contacted a a rescue organization and they came to bring the sheep in and care for it. And they named the sheep Barak. Get it? Barak. And Barak means blessed in Hebrew in the Bible. And this man was hiking in the bush and he saw the sheep with this fleece of wool all matted and thick and dirty. Hopefully you can see the picture big on screen on the live stream. And uh, he knew it needed help. So they brought the sheep in and they, they sheared it of its wool. And it had... 75 pounds of wool on it. The sheep had probably been lost in the wilderness for three to five years at least. Uh, It couldn't see there was so much wool over its eyes. It could barely eat. It could barely walk. The wool was so heavy. And when they sheared it, they had to monitor its heartbeat to make sure that it wouldn't die of a heart attack from the shock, that the losing all that weight wouldn't harm it. And so they, they sheared it and they took care of its wounds and they fed it. And that sheep... Hopefully you can see that on screen. The sheep recovered. Now, typically a a merino wool sheep produces about 10 pounds of wool in a year. So 75 pounds means that this sheep uh, had been out there for so long that it could barely walk anymore. And the sheep experts, uh, they they sheared his wool off and they gave him two coats to wear so that he'd be warm enough after losing all that wool. And they they gave him a company of other sheep to, to put him in a flock in the right place. And the surprising thing is that this sheep out in the wilderness survived. That somehow it found the company of other wild animals to be with, because sheep need to be with other animals. And somehow it avoided the predators that might have eaten it. Somehow it found water and food to eat in this dry wilderness of the Australian bush. Somehow it survived. But sheep are not meant to live alone out in the wilderness. They're, They're not bred for that. Barak was probably close to death when he was found. And so, too, with this story that Jesus tells of the lost sheep. See, the the sheep cannot survive on its own. It needs to be with the rest of the flock. It needs their company. It needs their warmth. It needs the shepherd to watch over them. It needs the shepherd to protect it. Because a sheep cannot survive on its own for very long. But neither can the flock. Now, in this story, too, remember we have the sheep, but we also have the flock as a whole. So let's take a look at the flock These 99 sheep are cared for by the shepherd. But when that one lost sheep is is lost, the shepherd abandons the 99 sheep in the wilderness. How could he do that? What were they thinking as he walked away? Well, uh, some commentators have said that maybe a flock of sheep that big was taken care of by more than one shepherd. It would have been a a communal flock of sheep. And there would have been a, a neighborhood of people taking care of them together. So perhaps another shepherd could have taken a turn watching over the flock. That may be, we we don't know for sure. But the important thing is that in this story, the flock is together at the end. The 100 sheep which were broken up by the one lost one are made whole again. The important thing is that they are all together. And that is the shepherd's main job. So let's take a closer look at the shepherd in this story. The shepherd is the one who is responsible for taking care of the flock as a whole. He has to account for any of the lost sheep by finding their, their pelt, their carcass, and bringing it back to town to show that, that, he, that, that he accounted for this lost sheep, that he didn't just eat it or sell it. And his joy in finding that one lost sheep is not so much about the one sheep, but it's about the making whole of the 100 sheep. Also, how did that sheep get lost? 
Was it the shepherd's fault? Was he not paying attention to his sheep? How did that one little sheep wander off? This shepherd, at first reading, seems a little careless, don't you think? This shepherd is not paying attention to his sheep except for that one little detail. He, he does notice that the one sheep is missing. He notices that one of his 100 sheep is gone. He knows his 100 sheep so well that when one of them is missing, he goes off to find it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he carries it back and he brings it into town. And these, these details that we see here, they, they complicate the story for us. It's not quite so simple as we thought at first, but they give it richer, deeper meaning to us too. And it's the shepherd's joy in bringing the sheep back that is probably the most important part of the story. The, Luke here uses the word joy three different times. He, he says that the shepherd joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders. And then when he gets home, he says to his friends, rejoice with me. And then in the explanation in verse 7, he says that there's joy in heaven over this one lost sheep, this one repentant sinner. Joy is at the heart of it. So maybe a, a better title for this story, instead of calling it the lost sheep, would be to call it the parable of the shepherd's joy. Because the story is really most importantly about the shepherd's joy in finding the sheep. And just think about that party when he comes home and he invites all his friends and neighbors to celebrate with him. What do you think they ate at that party? What did they eat at that party? You know, in some cultures, it's not a party until you got some meat on the table. I wonder if they ate that once lost but now found sheep at that celebration of joy. And that, that is wasteful. That is extravagant. That is even prodigal joy. Now let's go to that second story that Jesus tells us in verses 8 through 10. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We need to read these two stories alongside each other because they help us make sense of each other. See, in the first story, we've got God who is like the shepherd and we're like the sheep and that is all, all fine and good. But it doesn't make quite so much sense here in the second story. God, uh, represented by the woman in this story, has ten silver coins but loses one. Now that seems a careless, foolish, reckless, not really like God at all. What about that coin? The coin did not lose itself. Coins can't roll away on their own. No, she lost the coin. That much is clear. And she says it herself more than once. The, the sheep might have wandered off on its own. It might have been lost by the inattentive shepherd, but this coin did not lose itself. Still, the woman searches for her lost coin. She lights a lamp to brighten her small, dark home. Uh, she, she works hard to find it. And we can guess that she's probably poor. Uh, she's lost a tenth of her life savings here, or maybe at least a, a whole day's wage. And she's got hardly anything left, only nine days left to, of money to get through, to provide for her family. One commentator says that those ten coins might have been emotionally significant too. See, women got uh, ten coins as a dowry at their wedding. 
Those ten coins meant something to her. And it's like losing your wedding ring. You'll do anything to find it. And I'm sure you've got a story in your family or yourself about losing your wedding ring and what you did to try to find it. It's a serious thing. And this woman, she probably lives close to her neighbors who are probably equally poor like her. And everyone can hear her, uh, her despair at losing this one coin. And that's why they get to share in her joy, too. When she finds it, she, she has no shame. That's a luxury of the rich. No, she, everyone knows she's poor, and everyone knows she's washed it, lost it. So now she gathers everyone nearby together, and they celebrate this lost coin. She says to them, I lost the coin, and now I've found it. So rejoice with me. And the crazy thing is that throwing a party for your friends and neighbors costs money. Did she turn around and spend that same one coin that she just found to throw the party and celebrate? It's not a party without meat and drinks and sweets. That is wasteful, extravagant, even prodigal joy. Now joy really seems to be the key to understanding these stories. And again, Luke uses the word joy two times in this story. Uh, She rejoices at finding the coin. She calls her friends to rejoice. And then rejoicing breaks out in the presence of God's angels. Because joy is at the heart of whatever Jesus is doing, whatever Jesus is saying in these stories. God's joy is for the lost one, for the found one. And now in this third story, for the never lost. Jesus continues telling these stories about lost things, but this last story is the the most complicated, the longest one. And we'll have to come back to it another time in a sermon because there's so much going on here. Let's continue reading in Luke 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son uh, set off, got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. If we stopped here, we we could maybe call this the story of the prodigal son, as it might be titled in your Bibles. 
Or as some commentators have said, maybe the the parable of the waiting father. And some have even called this the story of the, the two lost sons. And there is truth in all of these titles. See, the younger son wants his money and he wants it now. He asks his father for a share of the estate, which, it would be, which should be one-third of the estate. Two-thirds would go to his older brother. And this is somewhere between uh, pretty rude and downright murderous. See, he, he's either asking his father to do something kind of unusual, but maybe it happened occasionally. Or he is basically saying, Dad, I want you dead Now, the father probably doesn't have this kind of cash just lying around, so he's got to sell some land, sell some animals, liquidate his assets to divide his estate. And he does it generously. He gives his younger son not a third, but half of all he owns. And he does it with this loving freedom of a a good parent that he gives to his child. He lets him go to try his hand in the world. And the son leaves home. This is a significant, a major decision. He leaves the town he grew up in, and he can probably never go back. The family in the town might have had this ceremony of cutting off, of of shunning him, of treating him as though he were dead, like the father says. The, The son goes off, and he spends this money living extravagantly and wastefully, even prodigally, and then two disasters strike him at the same time. At first, he runs out of money. And then second, there's this famine that strikes the land that he's in. So he's forced to throw himself at other people's mercy. And he feeds pigs, which means he's, for one, probably not in Jewish country. He's somewhere living among Gentiles. And second, it means that he eats pig's food, which is both gross and unclean, or at least he wants to eat it. And then he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses. Some translations say he, he, um, he came to himself. And one commentator says that is significant because uh, when you are away from God, you are not truly yourself. And when he comes home, that is when he becomes truly himself. The coming to his senses involves going home. But his main problem here is hunger. That's what he thinks, at least. He is going to die. He's going to starve to death if he doesn't get some food. And he knows that if he goes home, he'll find some food because at least the servants at home have enough to eat. So he, he comes up with what to say and, and, uh, or what he thinks he needs to say when he goes home. And it's not clear in the text if he really means it yet or if he's just saying what he needs to say to get some food. Treat me like one of your servants. It's not even clear he's repented at this point. So he rehearses his speech and then he sets off for home. And when he's close to home, the camera shifts. We we see the father come into the picture. The camera shifts to looking over the father's shoulder as he he watches and waits for his son. Because he sees him coming from a long way off. The father is filled with compassion and he runs to his son. He lays aside his dignity as a wealthy patriarch of a Middle Eastern family. He bears his legs as he runs, exposing himself to ridicule. He draws as near as he physically possibly can to his son. And he throws his arms around him and kisses him. Then the son begins his rehearsed speech. But the father won't even let him finish it. He, he never even gets to the part about being a slave the, the father dives right into preparing the feast, calling the servants to bring the robe and the, uh, the, the ring and the sandals, which all symbolize being part of the family uh, and having the power and control of being the son of this father. 
And, and the, the, there's this feast of celebration of this son. And we see here that Jesus is talking about good news for prodigal sons, for lost ones, for sinners, for ones who repent. And the father rejoices over his son. He, he brings his, the fatted calf and they kill it. The, the, the 4-H calf, the one that was tenderly cared for, maybe even by the older brother, the one that was raised to be a show calf, that is the one that they kill for this celebration. And what great joy they have in this feast. And the feast is still going on when the camera shifts again, this time to the older son. So let's read that in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes has come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. Maybe. You can mute it. Um, Just a sec. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. Give me a sec while I fix this microphone issue. There you go, should be muted. Why wasn't the older brother invited to the feast? Why wasn't the older brother already at the feast? He was working hard in the fields. He had been working all his life slaving for his father. Why didn't anyone send for him? Why wasn't a servant sent out to get him? Now it seems that this older son is almost as lost as the younger son. This family clearly has problems going on. The father loses his younger son, and he doesn't even notice that he may have lost the older son too. And the older son finds out about the party because he hears the joyful celebration. He's coming home after a long day of work, and he hears the party going on. And the servants tell him what's happening, not his father. And the older brother gets angrier and angrier and angrier, and his father is forced to come out and to plead with him. Again, he lays aside his dignity to reach out for the sake of his son. And the son can't even bring himself to address his father correctly. He doesn't use any respect. He, says, he doesn't even use his name. He just says, look. He sees himself as a slave, not a son. And all his work, all his sweat, all his tears for all those years has been as a slave, not a son. He doesn't feel ownership over his father's estate, which is rightfully all his He doesn't even feel the right to celebrate with his friends. Worse, he won't acknowledge his brother. He calls him this son of yours. 
And he assumes his brother has wasted all the money on uh, uh, prostitutes, which sounds like a possible exaggeration. And the father later comes back and says, no, this brother of yours. The father reorients his perspective back to his relationship with his brother. And he calls him my son. And he's right. His father has killed the fattened calf. He's killed his 4-H calf, that one he raised with tender care, the one uh, that he sacrificed for this celebration. It is wasteful. It is extravagant. It is prodigal love. And the father points to their relationship. He says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. See, proximity to the Father is everything. Closeness with the one who is the source of goodness and truth and and everything. Just like those so-called sinners who want to come and be close to Jesus, to be with him, to eat with him. Jesus welcomes them and and gives them food. He draws near to them. See, uh, this, this is a story about the prodigal God. Tim Keller, a pastor and writer, says this is about the prodigal God. God draws near to sinful humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes flesh and dwells among us, and that is wasteful. That is extravagant. That is prodigal love. And it all comes back to the joy. See, the Father says we had to, be ce- to celebrate and be glad. Joy is not optional. It is automatic it is essential. It's the way things work in the kingdom of God. Joy is at the heart of it. Joy over repentance. Joy over the lost ones. Joy over the found ones. Joy over the ones who were never lost in the first place. Joy is everything. Wasteful, extravagant, even prodigal joy. There's a, a verse in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 that speaks of this kind of joy of God. Now, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. My friends, this is wasteful, extravagant, even prodigal joy. Because joy is at the center of all these stories. Uh, and, and maybe they should be called something like this. You know, the first one, the shepherd's joy. The second one, the, the woman's joy. And the third one, the father's joy. That's not to say that we shouldn't focus on the lost ones in these stories sometimes. Maybe you have been the lost one, the wandering sheep at, at some point in your life. And the shepherd has called you and drawed you back into the fold, made whole. Um, Maybe you're the one who's been careless or forgetful, like the woman or the shepherd. Uh, Or maybe you're the one who anxiously searched for and found the lost one. Or maybe you're the loving parent who, who waits to see what the lost one does with their freedom. And that's the beauty of Jesus' parables. You can see yourself in more than one way in them. But wherever you do, uh, keep joy at the heart of it. Because if there is no joy in your finding and and your losing and your finding, if there is no joy in your seeking and your waiting, then you become like those Pharisees who, who grumble and complain that Jesus hangs out with sinners and eats with them. Don't grumble. 
be joyful like the the angels in God's presence, like God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rejoices at our changed hearts and changed lives. And even now, as God transforms us by the Spirit into the likeness of Jesus. So may it be so in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. prodigal, joyful God, you who rejoice over the finding of one lost one, you rejoice over us even now. And we, we bask in your joy and the warmth of your presence, knowing that you are transforming us by, by Jesus Christ's word. And as we enter these stories, the, the living word of Jesus Christ, transform us by your spirit. Give us grace to be joyful people to be the found ones, uh, to be the seekers, to, to always come back to the joy that you have over us in Jesus Christ. It's reckless joy. It's foolish joy. It's joy that is wasteful and extravagant and prodigal. And it is your joy over us that, that makes us whole. We, we praise your name. We give you thanks and praise for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And we, we, we rejoice in your love. To help us by that joy to live transformed lives of faithfulness in your kingdom. To be your people of joy who serve and love and and bring your joy to others. In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit we pray this. Amen. As a response to this text uh, we, we'd like to share a piece of special music with you all. Um, it's a song that you might have heard before on the radio called Reckless Love. It's a song that's based a bit on that first parable of, of the lost sheep, but really fits with all three of them and speaks of that wasteful, extravagant, reckless, even prodigal joy that God has over the lost ones. So I invite you to hear it and to, to rejoice with us in song.
fold, still your love far from me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all You have been so, so That's the first time you've probably seen me play piano. I'm, I'm learning. God's love is indeed reckless, at least to our human perspective. Reckless in the sense of God takes risks, God reaches out to his creation, to his loved ones in ways that to humans seem reckless, but to God seem faithful and provident and prodigal and extravagant and loving and joyful. And that is our God. So I invite you uh, to, to respond in thanksgiving to God's gifts for us uh, with your offering.